I am at Milligan University and I am so excited. I'm meeting the soccer team here today and they are gonna teach me to play soccer. It's a dream come true. Hey Nikki, welcome to practice. Hey, thank you, I'm so excited. All right, I used to see Mia Ham on TV. Like, do you all think you can teach me to be Mia Ham today? Hey, I mean, when was the last time you played? Well, like the first practice of my first grade here. Uh, okay, maybe we should take it back to the basics and start from there. I'm a fast learner. Do you think that's the best way? Maybe we should just start from the beginning. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll go with that if that's what you're saying. Okay, you're the professional. Yeah, so a major concept of the game is keeping possession of the ball, and you can only do that through control. So next we're going to work on dribbling. You can use any surface of your foot, so you would just take little touches and inch it forward. In these tight spaces, you're just going to do little taps and move forward. Yeah, so it's all about control, all about maintaining possession. Okay. And that's what we're going to focus on. Dude, this is a lot harder than I thought. Okay, Nikki, now we've talked about dribbling, but you can't do it on your own. You have to pass to your teammates. Teamwork so makes our... the dream work. Exactly. So, so if I want to pass the ball to you, I'm just going to put my plant foot right there, lock my ankle, and pass it right to you. Yes, exactly. All right, like that. yes. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you got it. All right, yeah, there you go. Let's just stop it. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. I'm learning. All right, Nikki, next we're gonna do agility. What so does that mean? Agility just makes you faster, able to move quicker. Okay, so next we're gonna work on shooting. Oh, so close. All right, I know what I did wrong. I kicked the ball in the wrong place. That's okay, that's why we have these things. All right. Okay, Nikki, we're gonna put all the fundamentals together. There you go. Give it up for Nikki. Why didn't you do a great job? All right. And, uh, and thank you also to the uh, Milligan soccer team. So if you don't see Nikki around, I think she's off beginning her career as a professional soccer player. So uh, we'll miss her around here. Um, hey, listen, it's a good time to be God's church. You know, I think about the crazy, uh, the crazy situation. So just so much craziness in our world. And I think about us gathering, maybe you're going to be there tonight at 7 to pray outside the hospital. I love that. That's what God's church does. Or maybe we got, we've got a lot of small groups and Sunday school classes that have been caring for their members who are grieving or sick uh, this, these last several weeks. That's what God's church does. Good time to be part of God's church. And of course, we're celebrating God's church this year. It's our 150th birthday, and I hope you've got plans to be part of those celebrations. Uh, the next thing coming up is the Family Fall Festival, uh, end of the month here. We've got flyers you can grab on your way out. It's going to be super fun. Um, last hour, I talked about all the booths that we were going to have, and I had several people come up and tell me that they were pretty sure I talked about all the booths 
that we were going to have. So let me clarify, in case you hear a rumor, I was not trying to speak about all the booze that will be at the fall festival. I was trying to say, like, tents. We're talking about, you know, the little things. Anyways, we're gonna, it'll, we'll talk about the history of the church. We're going to have inflatables and candy and hot dogs for the kids. Other food's going to be there. It's just going to be a big fall party, so I hope you're there. Uh, costumes are optional. Candy's guaranteed, so show up for that. We're going to have a good time. But also, make sure your calendars are marked for November 14th is our kind of our final celebratory worship service, the actual weekend of our 150th anniversary. And the night before on November 13th is our banquet. Uh, we hope you will register. Go ahead and register now for that if you know you're coming. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I'm going to be there, but who haven't registered yet, go ahead and register for that. That way you won. You'll make sure you get your spot, but also we'll be able to plan more effectively if people register for that early. Starting today, uh, we're doing a little thing that would be fun. Uh, we'd love for lots of people just to film a birthday greeting to the church. This will be, uh, we'll use these on social media. We'll use them kind of in bumpers and stuff for fun things. We got a little booth set up um, over uh, in the room next to the sanctuary there in between services. Just go over to the door, got a camera in there, just sit down, say happy birthday to FCC. Maybe you want to give a memory or a word of gratitude for what this church has meant to you. That'd be a great thing. Uh, We'll be doing that in between services the next few weeks. And as we get ready for that celebration, we're going back to the basics. That's what this series, The Fundamentals, is all about. Just the most basic skills. If you want to learn a new sport, you don't start with the trick plays. You start with the basics, like we saw Nikki do. And if you want to understand the Christian faith, or if you want to kind of reground yourself, that you start with the basics. Just the, the most fundamental truths of our faith. Last week, we talked about creation. And, the, and the, just the truth of God's word, that creation is beautiful and it's broken. And this week, our our second fundamental, it's a curious one. It's one that's always there, but a lot of us have misplaced. It's somewhere in the house. You knew you could find it if you looked for it, but you're just not sure where it is. I got a funny story uh, on my parents, and honestly, I'm not sure if this story is embarrassing to them or it's like it makes them seem awesome. Like, I can't quite figure it out, so it's sort of a risk. But here's a, here's a funny story on my parents. Um, they stayed with us for a while this summer. They were moving back to their place, and we were doing some work around the house, rearranging some furniture, and we needed a shelf in one room. So I went out to the garage, and I found a board. Uh, but uh, So I came back into the house, and I say, okay, hey, I'm going to run to Lowe's, buy some brackets, and I'll come back and put up this shelf. And my mom says, oh, we have a brand-new shelf bracket that we just bought and never used. It should be in the basement, first shelf on the left. And so I, I went downstairs, and sure enough, she was right. There in the, in the basement, first shelf on the left, was the gripper shelf support. And so I got it out of the package. I put up the shelf. It worked perfectly. The shelf is still standing uh, two, two months later to this day. But later, I got looking at the package, and somehow the font seemed a little dated to me, and sort of the, you know, the picture just seems a little, little old. I don't know. So I looked in the back at the price tag that was put on this product when they purchased it in 1992. 
So when my mom said, we have a brand new self bracket that we just purchased, she meant 29 years ago. So like I say, I don't know if this is like a super impressive story about my parents, that 29 years later, she knew exactly the shelf in the basement where the bracket was, or if it's embarrassing that they'd bought a bracket they hadn't used for 29 years. But I, I don't know. I don't know which it is. I think it's actually more impressive than it is embarrassing. That's why I decided to tell the story. But, but today's, today's fundamental is sort of like that. Like, we've had this one forever. But some of us have forgotten we even own it. Or if we remember we own it, it's on a shelf somewhere and it's sort of getting dusty and, and it's, it's not functional in our spiritual lives. Because here's the thing. Ever since the rebellion, we call it the fall, but we didn't trip, right? It was a rebellion. We rebelled against God's good way and it led to the leap and that caused the fall for all of creation and creation that was just beautiful now was beautiful and broken. Ever since then, God has been trying to do one thing, to reestablish the kingdom of God and the reign of God over all that is. Now, we describe this one thing in lots of ways. We say that God is trying to repair the relationship or heal what was broken or save the lost or forgive sinners. And all of those things are true. But the most common way that the Bible describes the great, big, grand purpose of God, when the Bible talks about God's big plans, it uses kingship language. That God is going to reestablish God as the king of creation and all of creation will be restored as God's kingdom. And once you know it's there, well, you find it everywhere. And it is everywhere in the Bible. Every chapter on the lips of every prophet. It's in weird places. Here's a weird place. Genesis 15. See, God has made some promises to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to establish you, and I'm going to give you a people and a nation, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all people. And then in Genesis 15, God repeats all the same promises. And you're just like, yeah, we just heard those promises in Genesis 12. Why are you repeating all these promises again? And then God does the weirdest thing. God tells Abraham to go get a bunch of animals and kill them and cut them in half and lay them on opposite sides of a little path. Like, that's weird, right? Little path going between two halves of dead animals. And then Abraham goes into a vision, and in the vision, Abraham sees the Spirit of God walk through these dead animals, like between the, the parts of the dead animals. Like, that's super weird, right? I'm not making this up. It's in Genesis 15. Go read it. Crazy weird. Except it wasn't weird to Abraham, Abraham knew exactly what that ceremony was. That was the ceremony that a king and a vassal would have. When the king would declare, I'm in charge, and here are the promises I make to you, and here are the promises you make to me, and if you break your promises, I'll do to you what you just did to these animals, and if I break my promises, you can do to me what I just did to these animals. That was how kings and vassals made promises in the ancient world. It shows up two or three times in scriptures. Super weird to us every time, super normal to them every time. It was God's way of saying, yes, Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation, but it's going to be my nation. I'm going to make you a people, but they're going to be my people because I'm the king. 
And, and this theme, it just, it's just everywhere. Uh, a few hundred years later, Samuel is the judge of Israel, the spiritual leader and the prophet. And the people come to Samuel and they say, you're old and your sons don't follow your ways. Appoint a king to lead us such as the other nations have. We want to be like the other nations. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And he prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God says, I was supposed to be the king of this people. This, king, this, this nation wasn't supposed to be like the other nations. They were supposed to be different than their nations because they weren't going to have a human king because they had me and I am their king. But as they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, this is what they're doing to you. So listen to them. But warn them solemnly. Let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel warns them about what human kings are like. He says that he'll, he'll take your sons as soldiers and your daughters as servants. He'll tax your land and your crops and your money and your cattle. He'll tell you what to do and where to live and where you go. And he, when he wants your farm, you'll take it. Are you sure you want a king like that? Verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be just like all the other nations. And of course, they were exactly right, right? That's, if you want to be just like all the other nations, let some other person rule your life. Let a human being rule your life if you want to be like everybody else. It could be you in charge of your life. It could be some government. Yeah, but if you let a person be in charge of your life, even if it's yourself, then you're just like everybody else. They said, we, we want to be like everybody else. With a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles, that line must have broken God's heart because up till now, God had fought their battles. That's what God keeps saying. Let me fight your battles. But they said, no, no, we want a king to fight our battles for us. When Samuel heard all the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord said, listen to them. Give them a king. But Samuel knew. Samuel knew that in the big picture, God was supposed to be king, and God was not going to stop that project. God was still on the one big task God had always been on, which was to reign over all of God's creation and have all of God's creation be restored as God's kingdom. So they get a king. But the prophets don't give up. In fact, once they got a king, the prophets couldn't stop talking about two things. One of the things the prophets kept saying is stuff like this. They'd be like, well, sure, we've got a king. But one day, we're going to have a king. Which must have been really hurtful if you were one of the kings of Israel, right? Like, and all the time, the prophets are going on like, oh, yeah, yeah, the current king's whatever. But let me tell you about the king that's coming. Like, that would have been super. Like, here's an example. Isaiah chapter 9, he's been talking about Hezekiah's son about to be born and what kind of king he'll be. And then all of a sudden he does this. And at first, you're like, who's he talking about? For unto us a child is born, to unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And Hezekiah might be like, oh, yeah, that could be my kid. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he's like, okay, that's a little excessive. I doubt they're going to call my kid Mighty God, but okay. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And now Hezekiah is like, okay, now you're definitely not talking about my kid. You're talking about that other king. 
that one you all prophets keep talking about. You keep being dissatisfied with the current king, and you keep saying there is another king, like a true king, a real king, an eternal king that's coming. And then Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If you want to be reminded, what is the big thing God is trying to accomplish? God is establishing God's reign over all things as God's restored kingdom. And the prophets just kept doing this. Yeah, we got a king, but one day we'll have a king. At the same time, the prophets kept reminding God's people that there never had been a moment that God had stopped being king. Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Zechariah 14, 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. How big will God's kingdom be? Everything. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. The prophets just wouldn't give up on this. They wouldn't give up on this vision God had that God would restore God's reign over all things and all things would be restored as God's kingdom. And so when the New Testament starts and the focus shifts to this guy named Jesus, you you may have forgotten. You may have not even noticed. That's what I'm saying. It may have been like a, a shelf bracket down in your basement for 29 years. When the New Testament begins and they start talking about Jesus, they can't stop talking about the fact that he is the king. Like everything they say is in kingdom language. Uh, the, the angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son. You'll call him Jesus. That name means God saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Just got to pause there. When we hear the Bible called Jesus the Son of God, we mainly think about how that is a claim to Christ's divinity. God is God, he's the son of God, so he must be divine like God is divine. And of course, it is a claim about divinity. But before it's a claim about divinity, in the ancient world, what they first would have heard was that it was a claim to sovereignty. God was the king, and guess what the son of the king grows up to be? The king! So he is the son of the most high, the heir apparent to the throne He goes on, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's the way Mary meets her son Jesus, to being told that he will be the king eternally over everything. When the angels come to the shepherds, they say, do not be afraid. I give, bring you good news that will be a cause of great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, that's the king's town, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. That word Messiah meant the anointed one, but they weren't waiting for an anointed plumber. They were waiting for an anointed king. So when they say the anointed one, they mean the anointed king who is the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger. When the wise men come to Herod, Verse Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born? the king 
of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Herod wasn't too thrilled with this question because he was the king of the Jews. That was his title. What do you mean, where is the one who's been born the king of the Jews? You're standing in his palace, in his throne room, as he sits across the throne. But the wise men are just saying what the prophets always said. Well, yeah, sure, we got a king. But one day we're going to have a king, don't you know? We're looking for that guy. And Herod, Herod heard this. He was disturbed. He calls together the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He says, where is the Messiah, the anointed king, going to be born? They say in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet was, has written. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Everybody who talks about the birth of Jesus, they just can't stop talking about the fact that he will be king over everything. His reign will never end. His kingdom will be restored. And what about Jesus? When he started talking about himself, when his ministry began, did he also, was he also hung up on the kingdom? Well, pretty much. Whenever he met an individual, first thing out of his, out of his mouth was, hey, you, Follow me. That's sort of how Jesus said hello. That sort of sounds like how a king would talk, doesn't it? Everybody they meet, follow me, follow me. But publicly, how did Jesus begin his ministry? Well, Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Mark 1, verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And what is that good news? The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. I have this experiment that I've been running for about 20 years. Um, as I've taught in various churches, uh, sometimes preaching, sometimes Bible studies, sometimes small groups, sometimes big groups of people, sometimes little groups of people, I ask occasionally this question. If you had to summarize in one sentence the message of Jesus Christ, like when he was on earth preaching, if you could only use one sentence to summarize his message, how would you do that? And people always give great answers. They'll talk about salvation or forgiveness or dying on a cross or they'll talk about how God loves us and God wants to lead us and all kinds of wonderful things. But they almost never give the answer that the Bible gives. And the Bible always gives the same answer. It's not like the Bible gives lots of different answers. It always gives the same answer. Every single gospel writer, when they attempt to summarize the message of Jesus, they'll be like, and then Jesus went from town to town preaching to them and saying, and they're summarizing a week's worth of preaching. They always summarize it the same way. Repent, for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has come near or is at hand or something like that. The same summary every time. Apparently, Jesus must have talked about this kingdom a lot. And all the angels say he's the king. And this is, as Jesus says, tremendously good news. Because everything we would want fixed about our beautiful but broken creation would be fixed if God established a kingdom. Because a kingdom has to have a land, right? There's a, a place, you know, kingdoms belong on a map. Well, and so for God to establish a kingdom, God will need to heal 
the earth. In fact, what the Bible says is God's going to recreate the earth and restore the earth, a new heavens and a new earth, and we will live on this newly restored earth. So for a good king, to have a good kingdom, you'll need a good land. And God says he'll heal the land. A kingdom needs citizens, right? You've got to have subjects, people who live in the kingdom. And Jesus is all about that. Everybody he meets, he says, follow me, follow me, make me your king. And God's kingdom is open to everybody who will come. And he says, you just, you just got to repent. Just stop serving whatever king you're currently serving and start serving me as king, and you're in my kingdom. Like, it's the easiest citizenship process you ever heard of. And any debts you had to pay and any, anything you couldn't make up, well, Jesus just says, I'll take care of that. You've just got to submit to me as king, and, and, and I'll take care of everything else, and, and then you're, you're part of my kingdom. We, and, and, and God says that, as part of our kingdom, God will actually make us into the people he always meant for us to be, right? You know, God says he'll, he'll restore us, he'll, he'll transform us, he'll heal us, so that we don't actually, we're not, we're not just a part of God's kingdom, we actually belong in God's kingdom. We fit in, we make sense, it's, it's our home now. If you're going to have a kingdom, you need a land, you need people, oh, you need a law, right? If you're going to have a kingdom, kingdoms have laws, right, and, and rules. And we look at our human world and we just think about how, how much we struggle to get that right, you know. You know, you can't look to a point in history where there wasn't injustice somewhere, you know, where laws weren't broken somehow. My guess is you got stuff, even today, there's some laws you would change and you think it would make the world a better place if the laws could just be a little different, the rules could just be a little different, and that's probably always been true. And so God says, I'm going to give you my law, and it's going to be for your blessing, and it's going to be for your nurture, and it's going to be for your redemption, and it's going to be for your holiness, and all of a sudden there'll be a law you can trust, and it's good, and when you break it, you'll be disciplined, but there'll be grace because the law is for you, not against you now. Can you imagine living, living in, under a king where the law was designed to be for you and not against you? It was law designed to make you holy and not cast you out. Wouldn't that be amazing? And, of course, every kingdom needs a king. New king. We, uh, we, people, uh, we people of this nation, uh, this human nation, uh, America, we're not big fans of kings, you know. You probably figured that out. We're not big fans of kings. Uh, in fact, our whole political system is built on the theory that kings can't be trusted. In fact, people in general can't be trusted. And that, that the more power you get, the more corrupt you're likely to be. So we have all these checks and balances and term limits and things so that nobody ever becomes a king. But even in our system, sometimes the results are pretty disappointing, aren't they? But, but just imagine, what if there was a, a good king? I mean, not just a good king, but a, but a, a perfect king and a trustworthy king who had proven that he wasn't in it for himself. In fact, he would give up everything he had for your sake. Man, a king like that, you could trust to rule, couldn't you? A king like that, you could, you could let them be in charge. You could rely on them for their faithfulness. A king who had lived a life of righteousness and then had said, why don't you follow me and I'll help you live the life you were actually made to live. 
And that's exactly what Jesus promises. Not just a a restored land, although the Bible promises that. Not just restored people, although the Bible promises to do that in your life. And not not just a restored law, a law that is for your blessing and no longer for cursing. A law that is for justice and no longer for oppression. But a restored king, a good and perfect and trustworthy king to whom you can say, reign in my life, and I'll be better off if you're in charge than if I'm in charge. That's how much I trust you. In this fundamental series, we're going to talk next week, just going to zero in on Jesus the whole time because uh, he's you know, one of the fundamentals. Right now, I, I, we're just going to keep moving on this kingdom thing just for a little longer because, of course, Jesus just won't stop talking about it. It's how he teaches us to pray. Some of you know this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does Jesus teach us to pray for? The very first thing Jesus ever teaches us to ask for is to ask that his kingdom would come. It's about kingdom. The early church, the testimony is focused on the kingdom of God established through the new king, Jesus Christ. Stephen, one of the first martyrs, as he's being put to death for having preached that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed king, he has a vision. Acts 7, verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he says, I see heaven opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And there's a lot in that claim, right? It's a claim of resurrection. He says, I see that Jesus is alive, even though you thought he was dead. It's a claim of divinity. I see that he's, at, he's with God, where you thought he was rotting in a grave. But most directly, when Stephen says he stands at the right hand of God, that is a throne room claim. That Jesus is there next to the throne. And again, who stood at the right hand of the king? Well, the son of the king, the one who would be king, the one who is preparing to have all power and authority handed over to him. Paul writes to the early church again and again about the kingship of Jesus. Here's just one example, Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, that's this Messiah, the anointed, have your same mindset as the anointed king Jesus who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, tearing the very, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as Grace Ann said, sometimes it's okay to stop right there. And just remember the cross. And we're going to talk about that some next week. But even though we can occasionally pause the story there and focus on the cross, we've got to know the story doesn't actually end there. The story goes on. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again and again, God's word reminds us God is establishing God's kingdom and the king will be Christ. Finally, 
It's, it's the way the Bible envisions the future. Again, we could look at dozens and dozens of examples. Here's just one. Revelation 11. The seventh angel sounded the trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, and they said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, his anointed king, and he will reign forever and ever. For 29 years, the gripper sat in my parents' basement, ready to be used, brand new. I mean, she was right. It was brand new, just 29 years old, but never put to work. I think we do that with the notion of God's kingdom sometimes. It just sort of sits there. It sits there, to be clear, in every single book of the Bible, on the lips of every prophet, in every one of Paul's letters. It sits there on Jesus' lips. I mean, it sits everywhere. And we just kind of ignore it. But this notion is fundamental to understanding what God is work and our role in it. We could do a whole series of sermons just kind of showing how this kingdom perspective changes the way we think about everything. It changes the way we think about the church. What is the church under this model? Well, Paul tells us that the church is the embassy, the ambassadorship of God's kingdom. God's kingdom exists and is coming to exist, and we are here trying to have a little outpost of God's kingdom where we live under God's law and God's reign, anticipating the day that God's reign will be over all things. It changes the way you think about creation. Because if God is going to have a good land, then we know that God is going to restore the heavens and the earth. And that the, 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 the goodness of creation will be, will be maintained and the brokenness of creation will be repaired. It changes the way you think about yourself, right? You're now a naturalized citizen. Nobody was born a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We're all born rebels. But you were made a citizen if you were in Christ. And Christ has said, whatever debt you need to pay has been paid by me. You're now fully a citizen, guaranteed the rights of my citizens, more than a citizen. You're my brother or sister. And so any victory that heaven wins is your victory. This helps me just when I think about myself as a citizen, it helps me understand how God's grace and God's discipline work in my life. That can be confusing for people. God disciplines the, us when we sin, and yet we say God has grace for us when we sin. How does that work? Well, if I'm a citizen of this country and I get pulled over, I still pay a ticket, but they don't kick me out. Or let's say I commit a more serious crime and I go to prison. Uh, I'm still a citizen. If America wins the World Cup, I still get to celebrate. That's my victory. I'm still one of us. And this is the way God's grace functions. Utterly sufficient that our membership in God's family and God's kingdom is maintained even when God disciplines us for our sin. Thinking about God's kingdom, it'll change the way you think about God's promises. God promises that Jesus Christ will reign forever and that his kingdom will be restored and glory will shine forth from his throne, and all those who are citizens of God's kingdom will be so eternally, eternally living in the light of God's throne. That is the promise. 
And that means that Christ's eternal victory becomes the victory for all of God's citizens. Because he is our king. And we have bent the knee to him in advance of that day when everyone will bend their knee. It helps me understand it helps me understand the importance of giving your life to Christ. This whole kingdom language does. It helps me understand the urgency of evangelism and why I want you, if you are not yet a follower of Christ, to become one. And if you have friends who aren't, I want you to tell them about Christ. It help, I think of it this way. In light of God's kingdom, I think of it this way. Since the fall, the natural state of humanity is as rebels to God's kingdom. That's what happened when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They rebelled against God's kingdom. And that means if we are rebels against God's kingdom, then any victory for God means defeat for us. Because we are, as it were, on the losing side of a great cosmic war. Knowing this, Knowing that Christ will be victorious, Christ comes to every rebel, like me and you. And he says, come, follow me. Come be a citizen of my kingdom. Join, join God's kingdom. Be restored, because this kingdom is going to be eternally victorious. And if you come to me, well, then that eternal victory is yours. You are the one who will get to live in a new kingdom, in a restored land, as a renewed citizen, under a good king, eternally, forever and ever. Amen. And all that somehow makes sense to me when I know that since the very moment of the fall, God has been doing one thing. It's in every book of the Bible. Again and again and again, God is establishing Christ as king of the universe and restoring creation itself to be God's good kingdom. And I want to be a part of that. Maybe we could pray together right now. God, we repent of our rebellion. I mean, just right now, we just acknowledge that we have lived as rebels to you. worthy of destruction, worthy of being forgotten in the good work that you are doing. And yet you have not forgotten us, but you have invited us into your kingdom, invited us to be your restored children, invited us to be your humble subjects. And so we just repent now because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that is for us good news and we worship together the one who has made all this possible our true and eternal king Jesus the Messiah the anointed king who is now and forever our Lord in whose name we pray amen